0: We asked a human trafficking restoration director your questions about human trafficking. Let's talk
1: about that. There's a lot of good questions and a lot of good answers hopefully today. What you believe about God dictates how you will think.
0: Our philosophies dictate how our culture behaves. Politics is simply the enforcement of cultural norms. The truth claims about God, philosophy, culture, and policies will affect what we value. When these things are in alignment, revival is possible. Well, hello there, and welcome to Further Every Day, where we explore the cultural issues from the Christian lens. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Mr. Uh, Dennis Mark. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you, sir.
0: Glad to have you on, and you are the director for Redeemed Ministries.
1: Yes, I'm the Administrative Operations Director, and I have served as Executive Director before, but uh, I'm now just the Operations Director.
0: Very good. And you've also served in law enforcement in a few capacities.
1: Uh, Yes, I actually served uh, the last couple of years with uh, HPD. Uh, I was assigned there uh, through a grant to the Governor's Office, uh, and therefore I was uh, assigned to Special Investigations, uh, the Human Trafficking Unit, and uh, as the co- um, or as the Task Force Coordinator uh, of the Human Trafficking Rescue Alliance of the Southern District of Texas. Uh, it is the federally funded law enforcement investigative task force for human trafficking.
0: So with that said, we're honored to have you in here and just going to introduce everyone else around the room. We're looking forward to asking you some questions, picking your brain, and hopefully we'll be able to better educate ourselves so we can help in this. Uh, starting at the front of the room, we got Mr. Steve, how are you doing, sir?
2: Hey, man, I'm doing fantastic, John Arthur. It is a pleasure to be here today, and how are you doing?
0: Doing well. Glad to have you there in the Chair of Theology, dealing with why we believe what we believe. And moving over to his left, Mr. Charlie, sitting in the Chair of Philosophy.
3: It's good to be back. I've missed a couple weeks.
0: Glad to have you there. So, dealing with the intellectual rigor that the Christian must bring in, of course, in the Chair of culture we got mr dennis mark thank you so much for being there and we got josh gilbert in the chair of politics how you doing
4: yes sir a rare sight to behold He, his favorite chair <laughs>
0: so chair of politics or the chair of culture either one right so very good Let's go ahead and start to dig into it. We've got a lot of questions today, and there's a lot to do. We're probably going to split this, okay? We're probably going to split this down the middle, because this is a heavy uh, question, heavy topic. We'll start off with the Chair of Theology, though. I know that you got a bunch of stuff going on, a bunch of questions uh, for uh, Mr. Mark. Go ahead, yes. Mr. Steve. Yes. Start Mr. off with Mark.
2: Mark. Um, one of the things that I'd like to ask you is... Uh, are not Christians simply enforcing their worldview and religion on other people when they force laws on sex trafficking people?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think a lot of times uh, the verbiage, especially that verbiage of forcing uh, a certain particular viewpoint on an individual um, usually comes from either a um, point of view related to the buyer's and Mm the pimps, the traffickers themselves. Right. Right. So they will use that as a defense as to the justification of their actions. Right. So you don't want to, you don't want to force your beliefs on me because this is how I live my life and whatnot. And so that's the morality issue has always been a tough one uh, with the human trafficking. Now, the the reality is, is we're going to talk about that probably a lot more, and this word's going to be used a lot, is that term exploitation. Right. And so when you get into the realm of exploitation, then it, It kind of takes away the power of that viewpoint of forcing something on somebody else because, in fact, exploitation is forcing something. They're forcing a worldview and a point of view on them, the victims, right? And so to sit there and say that we're trying to engage in that from a perspective of helping them, that we're not really hurting them as much as they're already being hurt. Right.
2: But like, um, I mean, you really can't legislate morality, right?
1: Uh, You can't, but you can, um, you can from a standpoint of the exploitation again. So you're not legislating the morality issue. You're you're actually, you're doing it against the exploitation of an individual, right? So that's where the -hmm. the fine line becomes is if if somebody's choosing to do this, right? And again, that's always the tricky part, because I think a lot of people believe that this is something that, people choose to do right a woman chooses to be a prostitute uh, a woman chooses to be an exotic dancer uh, a person even labor trafficking a person chooses that to do brick you know brick work or uh, day laborers or be a maid or a housekeeper or right nail salon so when they are choosing it that's one thing so you can legislate you can't legislate that part of it right that's a freedom of choice of that person but when that person's choice is taken away Mm-hmm. Now you're you're not legislating that anymore. You're legislating the the exploitation of that individual where they don't actually have a choice. Well, that makes that makes complete sense.
2: Yes. Um, also, um, now, how should the church respond to people who are, like, say, actively being trafficked?
1: Hmm. Well, I, we've said this for a long time. We've we've said this for a long time. Really, everything that a survivor of human trafficking, whether it be sex or labor, uh, is sitting in the pews of the churches. And so it's it's about using the skill sets that most people already have to, to respond to those needs of those individuals. It's actually about the fear of engagement, I think, is what prevents a lot of this from happening. So right. I, I think going into the churches and educating the churches and removing that, because most times when you're talking about human trafficking, there's this element of shock and awe that people like to portray about human trafficking, they want to come in and and really uh, sensationalize it to a point where you hear only the bad, you hear only how horrible it is, how much of it's going on, that size of the industry, the amount of money that's made, the number of victims, and what typically happens is you paralyze people with fear, Mm -hmm. right? And so people don't want to engage because they feel like it's so much that I can't, as an individual, potentially even start the process of helping and so that that's where we have to start stop doing that and say, right, let's look at the solutions rather than the problem. I mean, that's the typical you know the way that I would look at things is if I have a problem or somebody comes to me with a problem, I want that person to have solutions. And that's what one of the things that we've done at Redeemed is uh, it here. Here's the problem. But here's also the solutions that come with it. And, and it's not to sensationalize it. it's talk about the hope that can happen because you can provide that as an individual, regardless of what you think you can or can't do.
2: Now, say like those that have been trafficked, um, what if they stay committed to that lifestyle? And I mean, is there something that you can do for those people?
1: Yeah. And again, that's that that word uh, that we always have a problem with because, again, it comes back to an, an idea that people are choosing this, right? Right. Uh, I've worked with uh, investigators and DA's offices when I, when we were initially starting to to do the work here. And I, I met with the DA's office one time and the uh, person in that office asked me, well, we see them, they're out front smoking cigarettes or they're walking down the corner store. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they running away? Why aren't, if they're, if they're trafficked, why are they running away? Why are they still engaging in this, right? And so that's really the reality of this coercion aspect, right? We The three elements of trafficking is either force, fraud, or coercion, and force is the movie Taken. Everybody's seen the movie Taken. Right, uh, And, and it, trafficking like that does occur, not mm-hmm. typically in the United States, but it does occur internationally. The fraud aspect, that's usually just exchanging you know, the reality of false promises of good employment and all that and exchanging it. But then you get to the coercion part, and the coercion part is the most difficult thing to understand because that is the simple manipulation of an individual believing that this is their only choice, or that right. they made the choice to do this. And there's a grooming process, you know. And again, it's about the, the the process of what we call stages of entry. How does a person get into this? Uh, you're looking at potential vulnerabilities that this person has in their life already, right? Whatever that is, and it could be, it could be um, um, the simple fact of uh, money, uh, economics of it. It could be the ideology of the individual. You know what what's their belief system? Um, uh, then how what can you compromise in their morals right or are they mm-hmm. already their morals already compromised and how can you exploit that and then finally the ego aspect of it and this is the acronym is called mice and so the the, edu- the ego part of it is just what are the aspirations and dreams of this individual I can exploit so i right. can find one of these four things and i can exploit that vulnerability in them right mm-hmm. uh, and then become something that they they don't have right now a, a pimp once said to simply exploit someone sexually is I need to simply exploit their need for love, affection, and attention. So they're not getting at home, right? right? So you develop a relationship with this person in such a way that they become dependent on that person. And at some point during that stage of entry, the ask happens, right? Or the, the capitalization of the grooming process happens and you say, I, I need you to do something for me. And, you know, and typically in a, in a sex trafficking situation, it's usually a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship starting off, right? And so they've groomed them. They've isolated them from their friends, their family. Uh, the family really is confused and hurt by the way this person's acting. And so the trafficker can go to the young girl and say, hey, look, I really need you to do this. And, and if you love me, you'll do this for me. And then she kind of hesitates. Then he can draw a line yeah. in the sand and say, well, you know, if you, if you don't do this, and obviously you don't love me as much as I love you. And so then in her mind... Knowing that if she doesn't make this choice, she loses him and has right. nothing to go to. So she makes the choice.
2: Really sounds like there's a which pimps put a lot of work into it in order to get what they want out of it. Oh yeah doesn't? absolutely.
1: There's a there's a if you go if you go Google, you can go how to be a pimp, you'll find all the all the documentation on how to do Ooh. that, how to turn somebody out. So, 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 so I wanna
0: I I, I, I I wanna drill down here though, because you've you've really unearthed a gold mine. And I really want to dig in our heels for just a moment and soak that in because what you're talking about is very similar to cult like behavior because they're creating themselves, they're positioning themselves in that place where Christ is supposed to be in our heart. The pimp is. Right. And so when someone is being trafficked what what you're dealing with is an individual who is they're in need of the right individual the christ to fill that void we have the solution to the abuser Mm -hmm. and that's something that as christians we should be on the forefront and yet people as soon as it, it never fails, you know, uh, I first time I met you, it's not the first time I run into to your ministry, but the first time I met you was at a church event uh, we, and half of the people or a quarter of the people of the church who were going to show up, showed up because people get squeamish. And, and, and it, it, it is sick. It's like abortion. People it, are it, overwhelmed, like you said.
3: You just, You just hit on something, John Arthur. I was thinking about this earlier today. We've done the topic on abortion last week and this today. And I was sitting there in my mind, I'm going, which one really takes a precedent over the other? And I'm not sure you can do it with these two. No. They are so intertwined.
0: They're hand in hand. So when, when we're, we're dealing at, when we're looking at this from a theological concept of the person's question about what can we do as Christians, we are the only answer. And that's not a trite answer. Right. Because one of the things that that I've I've heard you say is is that these individuals need a family, a structure, and this needs to be people who care for them, who truly care, unlike the individual who says that they do. They say, and this person has built this relationship of trust, where it you now have intermingled feelings of betrayal, but also codependency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's one of the, the biggest struggles in the initial part of the stabilization process for women coming in is. You're developing a trust relationship with her, right? Because mm-hmm. and, and, the last person she trusted, this is what happened. In fact, we also have to overcome in that first few weeks of actually them believing that we're going to somehow exploit them as well. Right. And so that it becomes a very delicate balance of and, and a dance with these individuals to help them understand that, you know, there's the only motivation we have is Christ. That is our only motivation, right? And because they would ask you, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? And it and, and really was shocking to find out like when my wife and I first started with the ministry, it, we didn't get paid for almost seven years. We were just full-time working in other places, uh, full-time jobs and stuff. and And so we were doing it just as volunteers, right? And so when the women would come in and they would ask how, how you, you you have a normal job, you have you're still doing this, right? And so just the idea of that concept of doing it for nothing, it's meant a lot to them because they're, they're not used to that concept. And so it, it introduces them to the aspect of grace, right? It, it, you get to, you get to, they get to see grace in action because there's no right. way that they can repay this. There's nothing beneficial for the person that, who the giver is. And so it just, you know, it, it gives us the ability to demonstrate Christ's love to them in a way that uh, it really speaks volumes to them. And it really just gives a heart.
2: It makes complete sense for them to understand that the replacement of what they had is being replaced with Jesus Christ.
1: The caution, though, too, is that we've had women who've been in our program who the pimps actually use the Bible to control them. So they use Scripture to actually control them.
2: Oh, my
1: land. And so to sit there and turn around, and and, that's why we're very conscious about forcing them to become a, a, a part of Bible study or forcing them to go to church. Right. We have to understand where they're coming from because a lot of times the pimp who may have been in prison for years has memorized the Bible and looked up those scriptures to try to identify the the, the wickedness of what he can take and twist in the word right. of God to make it work for him. And so we oh, had women who were like, I don't I really don't want to do anything with church, I don't want to do God because this guy claimed to be God and he showed me scripture and he you know, he used this and so that's again it's a fine balance with that as well. False prophet. Oh yeah! Absolutely. Exactly. Josh, you had a question.
4: Uh, not so much a question, but just a thought on this. They are placing the what the pimps are effectively doing is they're placing the and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. It sounds like they're placing the importance and in the utmost importance on temporal security and exchanging that instead of having the eternal security that you would have in christ you're being provided a temporal security and being told that's the most important thing to you ever I,
1: in a way yes and in a way no in in a way yes they they show them the temporal security of making the money because they're you know we had one lady who was making thirty five hundred dollars a day for her pimp right so that's that's good temporal security right but the promise and a part of the coercion piece. Is the long term right? So hey, look, we're going to do this together. You're only going to do this for a short time now, uh, you know, maybe a couple months, and a couple months turns into a couple years, and a couple years turns into a couple, you know, even more years. And so the promise is always of the future, that a relationship that's building here. And so we're gonna we're gonna retire, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do all these things together because they want that buy in, but it never. It's a false sense of long term hope, and built on a. Action of small, small, and short-term hope.
0: Man, any other thoughts while we're still on the chair of theology? Because this could run for a while. Uh, on that. It really I mean, this could. Is a gold mine. Uh,
3: yeah. And, and maybe there is one more question here to ask. You know, first of all, for our pastors that are out there listening, mm-hmm. you need to start talking about this. I mean. I understand when we talk about Job, that's an important thing to to cover. When we talk about the book of James, that's an, an important book to cover. When we talk about Genesis, that's a, an important book to cover. But people, when they come to church, they're looking for something that they can apply in their lives. And it, it kind of broke my heart there, Dennis, to think that people were so over—Christians are so overwhelmed— by the shock, shock and awe of it, that they, they don't feel like they can make a dent in this. And my thought is, you know, it reminds me of the story of the, the little boy walking on the beach throwing starfish back. Mm-hmm. Well, which one don't you want to help? And to me, Dennis, if you would, t- share a little bit about what the, the most important thing a pastor could do in helping their church engage mm. in this battle.
1: Uh, there's so many things uh, so let's let's start at the at the maybe the root cause of some of this um, you know again uh, of course idolatry is a, the biggest issue here that you know it's the it's the trunk of the tree of mm-hmm. sin um, and so just helping people grasp that reality of what idolatry looks like and when I say that it means we're we're spend time chasing after things that are lesser than God right so that's really what it is and really what happens in most cases, is you have fathers and husbands in households that do that they chase after lesser things and so they're occupied with that and they're occupied with self-satisfaction and self-pleasure you know there's three things that motivate us in life one is to seek pleasure to avoid pain and to seek commu- to have community and so that seek pleasure is a broad spectrum of things but that seeking pleasure is where most people get into trouble especially for the husbands and and um, fathers of these young women, because typically the women become vulnerable when the father is not there, mm-hmm. right? So we can look at, you can look at studies that have been done about the men who are in prison and how many of them come from fatherless figures, fatherless families, and high numbers. And the same thing is really kind of true for victims of trafficking, where you have the, fa- the, the family is kind of dysfunctional, not there, the, the dad, the father is not plugged in, not paying attention. And so this young woman or even this young man are hoping for and looking for that. And, and so you they have this, this weakness there, this vulnerability that's now generated in this person who's going to go out and look for that person who can pay the attention, right? And oftentimes the father and the husband is also the same one who is pursuing um, the pleasure and becomes the consumer of sex and drives the demand up, right? So you have this father who's killing two birds with one stone, his own desire. And so he's actually going out and pursuing this lifestyle of buying sex, but he's also um, neglecting his family at home where you have a young woman or a young boy who becomes vulnerable to exploitation because they don't have that love that they need. And so pastors really need to talk to the men to to help the men step up and do their responsibilities as men, right? And Mm -hmm. stop looking at, you know, it really comes down to the, the culture that we live in from a, 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 an aspect of how do you sell, how, how can you sell a bag of Doritos with a woman in a bikini, right? So the objectification of women is really, we've turned in, in, on television and media and advertising, we've turned women into commodities. Uh, and so a lot of the men who go out and buy sex, that's the mentality they have. And there's a lot more I could talk about that, but well, that's another subject. But yeah. just that idea that we've objectified women, you know, and so you're you're painting this picture for them that um becomes difficult for us to understand. And so you it, it's almost like there's this mentality of the man looking at this, but also you have the mentality of a young woman and a young boy who accepts this put this put on to them, this commodification of themselves. That I in order to be liked or loved or whatever, I have to put myself in this position and accept whatever happens to me. So pastors really need to talk about that in church and in, into the reality of what the responsibilities of, of the man in the household, but also the vulnerabilities of the kids because we you know live in a society uh, of social media and social media is dangerous in so many ways. It, you know it is not the white van pulling up in your neighborhood to um you know to grab your daughter off the street it is the social media platform where you know i used to i say when i was growing up you had a diary and you were you were appalled if somebody read your diary and now you post all your stuff online and you're appalled when somebody doesn't like it and doesn't read it and so we put all of our stuff out there and people pick up on that and traffickers look for that and they look for that disappointment and dysfunction in a family and, and that's where they attack them at i've I've worked with a case where the mom had a homeschooled daughter. She had special needs and was homeschooled, never went really anywhere. And so one night she's noticing that her daughter's got her phone in front of her and she's eating dinner. And she's kind of curious that maybe she's watching a video or something. And so she did not really think about it. And then kind of was able to walk around behind her daughter. And there's a pimp watching her eat dinner with her family in their home, right? And so she's this guy's just watching them and listening to the conversation and getting to know the family, getting to know this girl better and kind of knowing what can I use against them to get her. And so they contacted us, and we turned it over to law enforcement. And so that it's in our home. It's not on the street. It's actually we're inviting it into our homes. And so if you don't know where your kids spend their time, where they go, what they do on the Internet, where they go with social media, uh, you need to know because I guarantee you, I've said this so many times, it's hard to be the parent, the tough parent on the front end, but it is absolutely better than being the brokenhearted parent on the back end when you get that phone call. You know, and I hate those phone calls.
3: That's a good word. Man,
0: just something to think about. When you have the opportunity, take it. And it's a matter of investing into their lives early, early. And, and one of the things that my parents did, and and by the way, if you want to be really conservative about how you train up your children, mine were, but they said stuff early. And again, if you haven't figured out that this podcast is not for small ears, okay, uh, go ahead and get them out of the room. But my parents said stuff to me when I was young, they said, if someone ever tells you to take off your underwear someone ever tells you that they want to see this or they talk about these certain things this is at four years old and you know what that's okay that's not going to scar a four-year-old right i mean but that's going to change how they think my parents described pornography without getting into the depths of it as a four-year-old they said they'll show you pictures of people who are nude man don't a lot of us wish we got that warning early
2: Mm
0: And and we're going to talk about pornography, right?
1: Yeah, the the grooming process—you know—again is just is a slow melt into that uh, world, Uh, and you know we understand how the the brain develops. You know, and I watched a podcast uh, just recently, or actually a TED Talk, I guess recently. The gentleman was talking about the fact that kids from one, you know, up to about one year old, uh, maybe one and a half, they discover their identity as self. Their their actual person, right? So they look in the mirror and they, they're, oh, um, there's my hand. So I'm now realize that I am a person. There's a, um, I have this identity here as a human being. About two to three, they start learning the emotional identity, right? And so that's where you hit the terrible twos and terrible threes because everything is about you know, gratification, <laughs> you, you, you're hungry, you're thirsty, your toys, whatever you want, you, you're you going to fight for me, me. Want. Right? And you're going to, yeah. you're going to have a meltdown in the middle of the store and be crying. And like, I want this candy cause I'm hungry. And, and then at that point in time is when they come to realize the parent is not having the meltdown. So now they understand that there's an emotional identity difference. Right. So there's that, that disconnect. And so they're like, okay, well I have my own emotions, and then the third phase, and we kind of go from four years on up, which is why I, when you said four years old, I picked up on that. From four years on until adulthood is the, the understanding of the right and wrong identity, right? We, we, have a, we have the ability then to understand the rules like dogs bark and cats meow, right? And so if you try to change that, then they're like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's, that doesn't sound right. So you're getting to a place now where this kids are being developed're trying to develop the right and wrong the rule sets and all that and when you start injecting things into there that makes things normal that is not normal, then you are you know you're setting the, you're setting up a rule standard for them that they will accept you know black and white uh, and it becomes very dangerous and so that's really what pedophiles do in, in the grooming process of getting a child. You know to turn them out for either for their own use or for commercial sexual exploitation
0: well and that's the and that's the thing someone andrew clavin i believe it was he said it really well and and i'm going to say this is going to sound you know dirty but he he said it very well he said kink is you are living out your trauma over and over again talking about bdsm right and you know thank god i've not been in that position but i know people who are and they would a lot of them would attest to that that they it's something that they're living out because it was done to them when they were young and so what you're doing is you're growing new neural pathways that say that you are not valuable and your value only comes when someone else is enjoying you in a way that doesn't necessarily represent or reflect you as safe
1: All right i would i would encourage you you know the viewers of this podcast to to go out and do some research on their own and look at one of the most critical things that we look at uh, when we're dealing with the, the women that we, we do with in our home is we have to understand kind of where they're coming from. We have to look at the background, what this, what the family looked like, you know, and is it a good family, a bad family? What's the situation here? But it's a thing called attachment theory. And so it's really how we develop our personalities. Um, you know. And so we're all born with a disorganized personality, meaning that we don't know that we're actually going to get that we need to survive. we when a baby cries, it's telling people it's hungry, right? When the baby's tired, it cries, it's telling people that it's tired, and dirty, wet, whatever the case may be. Until that child, it will continue to cry until that need is resolved. So that over time, as a child develops in a normal, functional family, they go from an insecure attachment, disorganized attachment, to a secure attachment. Meaning that I know that my needs will be met, right? But in that process. If you interject anything of neglect or abandonment issues then that child will actually develop what's called an ambivalent personality type meaning that and then I could live with it without a relationship I really don't doesn't really bother me because uh, maybe I'll get something maybe I won't but it doesn't it's not important the relationship's not important to me right on the other side if you have abuse violent abuse emotional physical sexual abuse then the child's more likely to develop a an avoidant personality type. I don't want relationship because when I have a relationship, I get hurt. And that's, so we're dealing with a lot of that, you know, and, and so where that happens in the early stages of life really affects the development process for that child. So most of them we deal with when they come in the house, they can be 27 years old, but depending on where the abuse started, that's where their emotional yeah. identity stunted. So you can have a 27 year old who acts like a five-year-old and she gets triggered, right? She And she can't, make logical decisions and she acts like a child and she throws a temper tantrum like a child, that's just because that's where her emotional stunting occurred because of the abuse. So we have to work with that and un- help them understand that, you know, the rule for us is we don't look at the behavior, look at the reason for the behavior. What's causing this? Because it's something that triggered them. What was it that triggered them that caused them to behave this way? And we have to address that and then we can move on.
0: Man, that's a really good segue to the chair philosophy, because we're digging into to, to the heart of the matter. And and so one of the questions submitted, I think, uh, about the heart of the issue, yeah. To be appropriate it, here.
3: Yeah, so isn't this an issue of the heart and not an issue for government intervention as far as laws are concerned?
1: Well, I, I think it's important that it is a heart issue, but I think um, as far as what I would classify as government and we're talking about creating laws for protection. Uh, the heart of a politician should have compassion. I mean, that's one of the responsibilities of any person who's elected is they have a responsibility, especially at the state level to protect its citizens, right? The constitution is pretty clear on that. It gives the the responsibility of the states to protect their own citizens. So you want that. But in 2000, um, the U S government did pass the trafficking Victims protection act. Uh, and that, laid down the groundwork for combating human trafficking. Uh, and it dealt with the um, prevention of human trafficking. It dealt with the prosecution of human trafficking. It dealt with the provision of services for human trafficking and the protection of victims. And so it really laid the groundwork. And so there were legislative matters that were taken in. It's really how the task forces were formed. It created funding, It created opportunities for And so and because of that, that legislation was passed because of the heart of the politicians who wrote that law. Right. So it is a heart issue when it comes to that standpoint. But it's it's bigger than just the heart. There's a lot more to it.
3: And, And I would I want to follow up on your TPVA comment there. I was doing some research on that, as a matter of fact, a little earlier. Uh, today, and I think the latest update to it was 2020, um, thereabouts. What was interesting on that, and for those that have listened to the program, they know where we stand on political issues from a biblical standpoint. I thought it was interesting to note that people like Amy Klobuchar supported, she actually authored with uh, John Cornyn one of the updates to the to uh, the TPVA, and, and I bring that up to say this. We, we live in a day and time in which it's hard to find politicians working together. Of all the things to work together on, thank you for at least doing this one, you know, and I hope more of them do it and, and I think they, that that can continue. I do want to ask another question here, um, and this is an interesting one because I, I want you to speak to this as it relates to not just human trafficking, but in other, quote-unquote, industries. Here's the question. Don't laws prohibiting a commodity simply create a black market?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the reality to this is, but since prostitution in the United States is actually illegal, it's already a, an underground market, right? It's, yeah. or it's already there uh, it, it doesn't look that way when you walk when you walk the uh, blade or the track down on Bissonnet uh, at <laughs> six o'clock in the evening uh, to midnight past. Uh, you, you see, you know, hundreds of women walking around scantily clad, and so it doesn't look like it's completely underground. Uh, but it's still an, an illegal issue, and so okay. that's the that's the hardness of trying to figure out. You know, do we legalize it to where we don't do do this, right? Do we do we open it up to where people are be able to free exchange money for sex? And, and the answer really is no. And, and while it makes sense in certain ways, I, I did spend some time um, in Australia with the Australian Federal Police and their human trafficking unit. And that was one of the things they were dealing with is they had just in certain provinces, certain areas of Australia, they had legalized prostitution. And when they did that, uh, and they'd also shut down their borders at the same time, so people weren't coming into the country as much. Uh, when they legalized prostitution, it actually increased the demand for sex. Mm-hmm. And when, since they increased the demand for sex, that meant the victims' age started getting younger because now you got a supply, you got to have a supply system in place to meet the demand. And so,
3: would, so would you say the? In, in I want to stay on the human trafficking aspect here. But would this relate the same way to marijuana? Would this relate the same way to other drugs, stronger drugs, um, and, and so on?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you understand, again, uh, it, we're really dealing with addictions here, right? So uh, we're going to talk about drugs. We're talking about how people use something, and then they escalate to something else. And the reason, the, the reason that is because of the reason that you know, when a drug is taken, it releases chemicals in the brain that bring pleasure and but the first time, is always the highest. It's never going to be that high again. And so you become termed chasing the high. So you're always looking for something to, to get that. Unfortunately, sex is the same way, right? So you have somebody who looks at pornography, and eventually they're going to go to a strip club because the, the pornography is not doing it anymore. And then you go to a strip club, and then you're going to buy a woman, and then potentially later on you're buying a child, and who else knows where you're going to go with that, right? And so uh, that that re- that chasing that addiction is the, the difficulty part of it. So if you legalize it, then you are in fact encouraging this rampant addiction of, of sex
3: opening which, the door more.
1: Correct.
0: Yeah, yeah, correct. So and just for those who are the super libertarians in the crowd, if you legalize it, you have to have the death penalty for people who are trafficking. And it has to be immediate. Right? right. Yeah. I'm. 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 Just saying. I will. I will full sale legalize it, whole lock, stock, and barrel. The first time you lay your hand on a child, first time you traffic the hint of you trafficking someone, that is unwilling. Full on ex. You know, if there are two or more relatable, reliable witnesses, execution. If you're willing to give us that, like if there's two reliable witnesses who are not, there's not compromised by uh, conflicting uh, interests. If you're willing to give us that, I'll I'll legalize marijuana. I'll legalize sex trade. I'll legalize the whole thing, but you got to give us that before we get
1: anywhere near anything, anything else. And I think also the reality too is, once you if you legalize it, you're not you're not going to you're not you're not getting rid of the exploitation part. Correct. You're not. That's not going away. Right now, it just makes it easier to get access to it. Uh, And it also becomes (laughs) more difficult for law enforcement to investigate because now you've lost that avenue of the complaint against somebody being forced into sex. Right. Because now everybody's like, well, it's legal. I mean, I've seen that in Brazil. I went to Brazil and spent some time down for the World Cup in 2012 and it's legal there. And so it's not about sex trafficking there. Now it becomes uh, bonded servitude. So you have women who are they're bound by uh, the financial aspect of the, the, they're under that control. And so it changes the whole dynamic of how you investigate it. And so, the, just with any
0: legalization argument, the compromise means that you give something and you take something. Conservatives, Republicans, Christians stop compromising on the truth. If there are people who are being injured, you can compromise as long as you get a biblical law in place that protects and does not compromise on the women's safety, on the workers' safety. Any compromise you make should be a win, as opposed to legalization full scale. You know, we were talking about about some of these European countries before. We've seen where that's go. Brazil, we've seen where that
1: goes. Right. I mean, the scripture is very clear about that. I think it's in Leviticus twenty nine nineteen where. It, 2019. I can't remember now. I think it's 2019. And basically, uh, what he's saying is, you uh, uh, fathers do not force your daughters into prostitution, lest your land fall into to decay. Right. And there's a there's a definite warning there. And we've seen that. I mean, well, the father may be not being the one directly involved in it. And there are some cases that they are directly involved in it. But in most cases, creating the vulnerability for that child to be exploited. You know, you you have a responsibility when when you. For the child, you have that responsibility for uh, bringing that child. God holds you accountable to that child. Whether or not it's something you do directly or indirectly from neglect or abuse or whatever the case may be. But I think that that we see that in our society now to where, um, you know, and we've again, we've commodified women in so many ways, not just on the street, but in advertising and movies. And, and, And
0: by the way, me too. Welcome to conservatism. Welcome to what we've been talking about for the past 80 or 100 well, years. And I well, know Josh had, has got something he wants kinda to Kind of
2: had the same thing go on, you know, in, uh, what was it, in Sodom and Gomorrah, where, you know, the— I was thinking the about two Lot. They had lot, no problem. You know, where he, you know, had the, the two angels come and, you know, and everybody shows up at his house wanting the two strangers that show up and he offers his daughters oh. up.
0: <laughs> and then, and then you they know? had they had no ideation or value of themselves and their relationship with their father, so that just a few verses later, they they roofie their dad and they sleep with him twice. And so, what you see there is a failure of a Christian. Lot, you're going to see Lot in heaven because you look at the apostles. They talk about Lot was vexed by the wickedness, but Lot compromised. If you want to sum up lot's life he was a absent father an absent husband and a christian in a wicked land who did not carry the gospel forward, did not carry god's name forward josh jump in
4: so going to to everyone's point one of the so one of the things i'm doing right now is i'm about to prepare a study on dating and betrothal and marriage and one of the biggest things that I've learned from this study is the importance that the parents placed on purity. Mm. Yeah. And it's going to this point of the culture we live in is so objectifying to the women of the culture, and it does not keep them pure. It, it, it's almost as if the culture is purposely degrading them so that they can get their money and show their dependence upon them instead of their disp- their dependence upon god
1: yeah and, and again i think a lot of times too when we, we we're talking about the women that we deal with um, majority of the time we're talking about generational abuse um genera- generational exploitation there's a lot of, you know, of of these women who do not have that kind of structure in their life where their mom was abused, exploited, uh, their grandmother was abused, exploited. And so it's just a generational thing. And when you have, that's all, you know, it becomes very difficult, but for those parents that are, are engaged, you know, you're going to have some really tough conversations, but be comfortable with that. Right. And, and and I wish I had known what I know now, back when I was raising my daughters in their early years, because our conversation would have been a lot different. Right. I would have, would have talked to them about things that were, would really be important in their dating time. And I did in a certain way. I mean, I did talk about the fact that, you know, you want to be friends with the person that you're dating. You, you don't just want to, you know, just take a random shot at this, but that, but, but the importance of drawing those red lines in those relationships right off the bat are very critical. Mm-hmm.
4: And, and, and something, something also, also or, yeah, you got me. Okay. Something <laughs> also <laughs> is that, Reputation meant something back in the Bible. Your reputation to the other people's family that you were potentially interested in dating or going uh getting betrothed to determined a lot uh, if you were going to be getting betrothed to that person. Right. Good point. And so reputation used to mean something and unfortunately it doesn't really mean anything now.
1: You'd be surprised. Uh we've actually had oh, okay. we've actually had you know staff members who were absent from sex and working with us and working with our lays and the lays are completely impressed and almost to a point of envyness of, of that reality of purity. Right. They, it's something about that that's like appealing to them, you know, especially, you know, it can be, sometimes it can be negative, it can be positive, but that still, there's an appeal of importance to that. To, that's a treasure. That is, you know, something that is to them is highly valued. and they would encourage the staff member then definitely don't want to mess around with a guy because, you know, it will will definitely mess up your life. And so I think it does count in a lot of ways. Um, Now, the uh, the society in general, media and entertainment and all that would play that off. But I think for people, we have that in us. We have that built into us. God put that in there, that importance. And so we have it. It's there. It's just how do we look at it? And do we, uh, do we accept what society and entertainment and media tells us, or do we follow the voice that inside of saying that is important? Mm-hmm. Great, point. Great point. So oh, when some people would,
3: would say, well, shouldn't these women just be able to walk out the door? Would you speak to the issue of why they can't just walk out the door?
1: Yeah, there's there's so many uh, variables there. Uh, one we talked about coercion earlier. Again, making them believe that this is their choice. They've made this choice. They've accepted, you know, the situation that they've put themselves in. Even we've had women who have been out years now still struggle with this. Still, you know, saying, "Oh, he didn't hold a gun to my head. You no, know, I I freely chose this. I knew what I was getting myself into." And so you have that. But then you also have like we deal mostly with when you're dealing with other cultures, right? So for this, say for instance, we. Take somebody from the Asian community, right? Who's been put into this situation, and sometimes, not all times, but sometimes, the family is kind of responsible for that. They've sold them into this. They've raised them into this to be sold into this work. And so, if you go out and try to rescue them, try to recover them, try to draw this out, the factor of shame of you know betraying their family honor is so much more important than their own well-being, and and so. That's a big part of that for them is that they're not willing to. I can't put shame on my family because of this situation. I have to fill this obligation, or my family will be dishonored in my home country. And so, and then there's also the threat. You know, hey, look, um, this uh, another part of coercion is if you don't do this, we know everything about your family. We're going to harm your family. Maybe we'll go get your kid sister and turn her out. And so that power of threat on family members is another way. So we don't know the backstory that, you know, when you look at somebody in a situation who's in a brothel or in a strip club or working online, you don't know the backstory of that person, how they got there. That's one of the things I I taught law enforcement when we're doing interviews is to not ask the why questions like, why are you doing this? Because that's a shame question, right? They know why they're there. You know why they're there. So why even ask that? The question I ask law enforcement asks is, tell me how you got here. Tell me how you got to this point in your life. Just tell me your story, you know, and oftentimes they'll tell the story of, you know, where it started in their childhood and who abused them. And how, when they are using drugs to medicate themselves and to disconnect from the pain that they're feeling, mm. you know, when they ran away from home because nobody would get them and nobody understood them and how they got picked up on the street by a pimp or somebody else, you know, a benefactor. And and they'll, they'll tell you the story. And once you make that human connection with them, then they Feel like you're going to be the you're you're actually interested in their story rather than just the situation. I we don't ever really I you know when I met with women and law enforcement operations I never talked about the situation. I always just said, "Hey, tell me tell me how you get here. How do how did you end up in this place in, in this time?" And people all have a story. And when you get that story out, you hear what's going on in their life. And
3: you find that they'll usually share it.
1: They usually share it because they've never shared it before. And, and they were, nobody's ever asked that question. Right? Yeah. That, and that's a big thing, I think. Uh, and it's tough, you know, to build a trust relationship with somebody that fast to where you feel like you can t- talk about things that you haven't talked about before. Uh, my wife is phenomenally good at this. Um, when we first started doing this work, when we were first all, we were volunteering for Redeem Ministries, we were actually uh, doing outreach and strip clubs together. And so we would go into strip clubs and my wife would have these long conversations with these women about how they got into this situation and, and we would just sit there and listen to them and talk to them and, you know, encourage them and, and let them see the door open. That's, that's what it was about for them is the, the possibilities that this isn't the only option in my life. Right? Cause again, I tell people all the time, when it comes to this choice, right? I, I tell people, if you're on a 10 story building and a fire breaks out, and it consumes the elevator, it consumes the stairwell. uh your choice is either to lay down and burn up or jump out a window and I said that's not a choice, that's a lack of options
3: and you know what, and I don't mean to dig up a wound, but we saw that with nine one one right and it was it was horrific to see that, but it goes to the very heart of what you're talking about there All right uh it's when you're locked in a place like that. You, and this is where pastors this is where the hopelessness needs to be addressed the, our, our young people um, need to understand that there is hope um, one thing that that I will say is i'm I'm personally aware of a, a situation where a girl was um, ran away from home and she got picked up. she was a day from being shipped out. And that family got to experience reuniting. And if I could, just take a moment to speak to you young people. Sometimes running away feels like that's the right answer. And I, I want to be very careful here because I'm not laying a blanket statement. I just want you to understand that that you have to be very wise In your decision because it could lead to something I'm going to call it deadly really Um, because these people that commit these atrocities they think of you as a piece of trash and when they're done with you they're done they don't care whether you live or die and I think I hope our, our, our younger audience will hear that and you know charlie
2: i'd like to add to that their interest is not in that person their interest is in themselves and their bank account is solely is all it is about
1: absolutely a pimp does not wake up in the morning wondering how bad he can abuse somebody he works worries about how much money he can make that day yep that's all he worries about and whatever means he has to do that he will and so um you know, again, they talk a good game. That's why they call it the game. They call it the game, call it the life. And because it's all about playing the game with them, right? You yeah. get them to believe that you're the benefactor for the, that's going to answer all their dreams and needs. And then you just basically turn...
2: Exploitation of someone else for the gain of their bank account.
0: Right. So I want to dig into one thing that you had said a moment ago. You were talking about the importance of speaking to the these women and these men who've been trafficked, but more so typically women, speaking to them like a human being. You know, uh, Pastor Scott Powers, a local theologian we all know, uh, actually got his doc, you know, doctorate in divinity, good man. He said something really poignant one time. He said, discipleship begins before evangelism. He says, discipleship. Let that sink in for a moment. Discipleship begins before you can evangelize a lot of people. You have to be putting into their life. Jesus didn't say, go make, you know, converts. He said, Go and make disciples. And what y'all are doing and what your ministry is, is a targeted version of what the church is called literally, strongly to do. It was Jesus' last words on earth. It's to make disciples. And sometimes that means getting down on your hands and knees in the dirt in the worst possible place
1: and being there with the person.
3: Ministry is dirty work.
1: Uh, I think the word's brutal, brutal work. Um, I, I think that, you know, again, it's this mentality that we have that mission work is over there somewhere else. Right. And, and mission work is really in our own backyard. And that's my wife and I, we consider ourselves missionaries. We consider ourselves missionaries when we were going to the strip club and people would often ask, how do you, how do you do that? How do you go into that place and not be distracted? And I said, well, uh, I actually walk out of a strip club closer to God than I do when I walk out of church. Amen. Because you're f- more focused on what God's doing in a strip club than you, you know, than most people are interested in what God's doing in a church. Because most people, you can see them in church, and they're, you know, half- halfway through, they're like looking at their watches, like, well, when's that game start?" And what are we having for lunch? And mm-hmm. I got this project due tomorrow. But when you're in this environment. Of brokenness with people and you're looking at their brokenness and you're identifying you know where this person is and where they're going and where they've been in the past you don't think about life you know, your own life you think about them and so that's really the importance and that's where the value we've been put on what we do and when you think about the number of victims out in the world we always say we're worried about the one that's in front of us right now that's the one we need to worry about and so it becomes the, f- the focal point and so You know, we've got to get to a point where the church really steps up into the responsibilities they have because the scriptures are very clear that we're not saved for ourselves. We're saved for other people. Our pastor says that all the time. You're saved so that you can go out and make disciples and reach other people for God and help them with their brokenness and understand their brokenness because you have your own brokenness. And your brokenness may be the very thing they need to hear about in order to, to understand who Christ is in your life. So.
0: And and just to pile on one more, and I want to get your reaction to this, there was a pastor in Arkansas I was visiting, and uh, he said something really interesting. He said, the American church has this idea that the quarterbacks, or not even the quarterbacks, the coaches need to get out on the field and play ball, whereas the coach trains a team and spends time encouraging the team members. The coach doesn't sit on the field. Maybe he does in some situations, but it's incredibly odd and rare. The coach is supposed to be training and preparing the team for the field work. And for those of you who didn't get the analogy, if I have to spell it out, you're supposed to be out there in the fields. You're supposed to be working the church. You don't pay the pastor to do that. You pay the pastor to train you and to shepherd you, to come to you when you need it. But the reason we have a pastor is to get the individuals in the congregation ignited, and by the way, I think a lot of pastors have that misconception too.
1: Sometimes, yes, they're, they're, they forget that they're shepherds first and, and business people last, mm. and that's, that's you know that's the, the important aspect of this. I think that you know um, we we miss a lot, um, and I, I, again, you know, I I love the church we go to, and he, he makes sure that the chairs are completely uncomfortable to sit in. Um, and there's no carpet in, really in the building uh, and uh, maybe the air conditioner will work uh, and so uh, you know he, he his famous saying is you don't come sometimes you just sit in a, in a seat and sing some songs it's, it's more than that There's you know, the, the worship of church is to worship what God's doing in, in our lives and how we're reflecting on what he's done for us so that we can go out into the world and share that hope with people and so um, it's very very critical you know again I think people just don't really spend enough time in the Word to to understand what their responsibilities really are because, you, um, you know, one of my favorite pastors is John Piper and he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And that really was instrumental in my in the development of me going into this kind of ministry. Um, Cause I didn't, in, in the story he talks about, you know, this couple collecting seashells and you don't want to get to the, sitting in front of the King and Christ asked, what did you do for my kingdom? And you saw him, show him seashells, you know? Um, just wouldn't be good wouldn't go down good
0: well exactly and he he even talks about that you wicked and foolish servant you know when you when you hide away your talents because you're afraid of what god will or will not do and so we're we're kind of coming up on a on a breakpoint because we're going to take this and i we're, we're just going to keep rolling but we're going to just say goodbye to y'all for a week because this is going to be a long haul, because we have too much to get to. We had some great questions come in, and we would really, really love to get some of those in and give them the right time they deserve. So let's go around the room just a little bit and give a give a wrap-up for this week and some hope for next. So Chair of Theology, what is a good takeaway from Theology? theological perspective about God's innate worth? What should we be doing with discipleship and evangelism?
2: I um, I think that as as far as discipleship and evangelism goes, I think the church needs to be spending more time on, say, ministry locally than they do spending more money on, like, Buildings, programs. Building programs (laughs) or or even ministry that's like overseas. Granted, okay, overseas ministry is important, but I think uh, some churches have a tendency to spend way too much money on money that goes overseas instead of ministry money that should be spread out locally for ministries, say just like what he's talking about here.
1: This is important stuff, man. I mean,
2: extremely important stuff. Absolutely. Unbelievably important stuff. I mean, we could have people here that would spend time going out and volunteering for these types of things. It's unbelievable. There are people that would just be amazed to do stuff like this.
0: So, just going to go ahead and get part of this cuz we're cover this more in part 2 but I want to get your reaction to that what do we need to be doing as christians what kind of time commitment do we need to be providing cuz this is this is a serious thing and then if you're not able to be part of the direct hands-on ministry what are the needs of a place like redeem redeem specifically but in general what are things that people can do to help these ministries
1: Oh, well, there's uh, again so much. So when you talk about direct care services, um, it, again it is specialized care. You know, so there is a lot of training that you really kind of need to go through. But we're looking for the people who have the willing heart, right? And again, most people we bring on staff with us. Um, we tell them this is not going to be your normal job. In fact, it's not a job at all. It's it, it is full time ministry is a calling. You have to be built to do this work, uh, and so that's important. Volunteerism is there so many aspects to the way people get involved. And and again, um, like we've had people come and put ceiling fans up or repair a toilet or, you know, these things that you just don't think about in the day-to-day stuff, transportation needs, um, teaching a class, um, teaching somebody literally how to um, use the dishwasher or how to wash clothes because they've never done some of these things that we take for granted. We take for granted so many things that these women need. And so from a a hands-on standpoint, there's lots of things that are needed uh, in a day-to-day basis. Now, as far as giving, I think that's one of the biggest difficulties when it comes to overseas ministries is the buck travels a lot further in overseas ministry, right? So you you get to say, well, for $30, you get to feed this child for a month, you know? Right. That doesn't happen here in the United States. Um, and so, but our way that our program works is we compare it to like uh, a medical situation. Uh, so when we get the call, we get a woman who comes into our program, the first thing we have to do, be like an emergency room, we have to assess and stabilize them. We have to know what's wrong with this person psychologically, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. We have to know where this person is. We have to assess and stabilize them. That takes anywhere from six months to a year sometimes, depending on the level of trauma once we assess and stabilize, then we can get them into the process of the actual uh, care, the, the actual specialized care. Uh, so the first spot would be like an emergency room, right? You're going to go assess. The next stop for that person, if they got a serious injury, like a limb's been removed, then they're going to go to ICU and they're going to be specialized care, which specialized care costs money, right? Anybody been to ICU before? Uh, sure. It's yeah. expensive, right? And so even the emergency room is expensive. But then once you get that care done and you you help this person adjust to the trauma, because the trauma doesn't go away. You just learn how to deal with it. You learn how to use tools. So when when you're triggered, you're able to regulate your emotions and your behaviors and uh, every aspect of your life. So basically that next stage is the transition phase or the rehabilitation phase. This is learning how to live with this disability that you now have. This trauma is going to be disability for the rest of your life. So it's basically that process. And so, you know, it's, it again, that takes specialized people in a specialized place, and that's why it takes money. We we need people. If you can't go, then send, right? That's very Absolutely. clear in the scripture. Absolutely. Moving over to the
0: chair of philosophy. You know, we, we, we went through some of the questions and we've got some real zingers that are coming uh, in part two of this. But when it comes to answering the culture, because when you're talking to folks, uh, you know, some of those, some, some of these questions came from friends, right? Who, who struggle with pornography and it's, it's, it's in, it's in the back there and they bring these arguments forward. How important is it to have that philosophical rigor and how do we need to go about finding those answers, plumbing the depths of scripture and also knowledge
3: to I do think, that? So the, the biggest takeaway I could give here is I, I think we need to do our research. If you know of a ministry that is um, involved in uh, human trafficking, you should probably try to meet with some of those leaders and learn about it. Um, you, can, you can get on the internet and you can find some pretty good material about what this is all about. And then what I would recommend that you do is just think about your daughter being put in that place. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then tell me how much you should get involved. And, and I want to be very careful here because I think, Dennis, you, you really hit it well. This is not for everybody. And, and I totally get that. But I think for Christians, we walk around in our own isolated little world, all protected, and we think this will happen to somebody else. That's a lie. Amen. that is a lie you mm-hmm. know it it's and irrelevant
0: till it happens to your daughter. amen
3: and right. I think or son. It, that's right and I, I think that's the biggest takeaway I could give here and if I could add one more thing pastors we've we've got to do a little more from the pulpit to address this I'm not saying you preach on this 52 weeks a year I'm not saying that but I am saying Get your church involved in crisis pregnancy centers. Get your church involved with human trafficking uh, work. and, And understand the difficulties. And even if you can only go hang a fan, go hang a fan. It helps. It makes a difference. So I
0: just want to get your thoughts on some of that because he said something interesting with pastors how would you approach a pastor who this is not on this pastor's radar human trafficking just it's not even there how would you go about approaching that with a pastor to to bring him up to speed and get them to buy in
1: Mm. so there's there's several areas here that i want to cover one of the courses with your congregation understanding you know who, who you're dealing with and your families and stuff, right? And looking for those opportunities to where you have something going on within your congregation, the families there, maybe some of their stru- stuff they're struggling with to get to address those needs and, and really speak to the families about look, the importance of safeguarding your children uh, from the internet, from social media. That's very important. Uh, but looking for those situations where, you know, we've had women who were daughters of pastors who got exploited. And so it can happen right under your nose, right? And so it, it may be the simple fact of talking to the families as to what to be looking for in your own child in that situation where you see behaviors that that are not, they'll say normal because teenagers seem to be have this whole genre of unique experience that we deal with, right? But there's always something outside the norm that needs to be addressed and looked at right yep. especially if they're yep. spending more time away they're getting in more trouble They're you know there's just a there's a disconnect there going on and have that have those open communications because the child needs to know they can come to you no matter what the situation is that they're in and they're not gonna get in trouble you're gonna help them because I've had so many cases where the daughter did not know how to tell her parents that she was in trouble right and so mm-hmm just being able to have that open line of communication is very critical to, uh, uh, you know, again, addressing this misunderstanding about the whole situation here that women by nature don't choose this kind of lifestyle, right? There's always going to be some kind of backstory. Um, I, 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 really, and this old saying no woman wakes up in the morning wanting to be a prostitute. This doesn't happen. Right. So just, Changing that mindset for the men out there to that reality um, of what it is that they're looking at, right? Because we know we may not be able to change this generation now, but we can change the next generation of how they look at women. Amen. That's yes. that's important, Amen. right? And so we have to combat the culture in that capacity. The second thing is is to really understand what human trafficking is, right? Because I, I I won't name the church, but I had a a conversation with a pastor one time, a senior pastor of the church, and I said, "Hey, look, we'd like to come in and kind of explain what human trafficking is because I think people don't really understand it." And and I said, "You know, you just gotta you gotta know the realities of it, what it looks like." And he was like, oh, "No, I think we're good. I think we're good." And not even a week later, um, one of their staff pastors got arrested on a solicitation of prostitution charge. Uh, you know, which was an anti-trafficking operation, right? And of course, that that whole church suffered from that situation, right? And it would have just been nice to have a, a quick lunch and learn and go, look, that person online, they're not there because they wanna be there, you know. And so just changing that mindset for the man are very, very critical, especially for church staff to understand and to understand really the reality of what it what it takes to get out of that situation for them. Because it's for them, it's not just simply stopping. It's, you can't just take a woman out of the situation and put her in an apartment and everything's gonna be great. There's a lot of ups and downs with that. And and I tell them, you know, it's a process of sanctification, just like it is for us. It's a journey. We're on a journey with God rescuing us every day from ourselves. And so it's the same thing. Amen. And not to take away too much thunder from next week, because we never got
0: quite, quite south of uh, <laughs> philosophy here, but culture, politics, and economics. I do want to get a word from you because you're sitting in the chair of culture. I want to get a word from you on exactly this great segue into the kind of culture that we need to start to breed because howard stern famously said one time well you know if if they want to do it more power to them uh but if you make one you know you make a woman do it then then shame on you you need to go yeah he said something like you need to go to hell so you know howard stern there's something fundamentally wrong with that whole paradigm and you just hit on it and this is this question i was going to ask you i wanted you just just for a moment don't give away too much for next week but dig a little bit into the what kind of culture do we need to be ascribing or rather enforcing as christians because we we outnumber the non-christians in america we can set we can be the thermostat so what kind of culture do we need to set, especially when it comes to folks who talk about consensual trafficking? Because there's a difference between forced or coerced, some will say, and also some will say versus
1: consensual. And it's, it's usually more blurry than that. Yeah, I, I actually teach people uh, that the difference between prostitution and trafficking is survival. Right. So for the trafficking victim, it's about survival uh, while being with a pimp or a trafficker and you'll do whatever you have to take not to get hurt and to do what it takes to stay uh, alive. Right. So you'll do whatever it takes. It's about survival. But for the woman who is out there and typically what we call survival prostitution or renegade prostitution, most likely at some point in time, she was a trafficking victim. She just doesn't know it. Uh, She wasn't aware of it. Um, But now she has multiple criminal uh, charges against her, uh, a, a history of, prostitution, arrest, drug, burglary, whatever, you know, because pimps will get them arrested for this very purpose of limiting their options again. And but so she has a criminal record. She has no credit history. She has no work experience, but she knows how to do one thing and one thing only. And so she you know, she's got two mouths to feed now. How does she survive? Right. So it's survival. Um, And again, that's where the the church can step in on both cases is understanding what it is for to be a victim of the trafficking situation, but also to be an understanding of the victim of the culture that we live in to where these women don't have the necessary uh, empowerment that need to live independent, sustainable lives without having to sell themselves. Right. And then shame on the person who pays for it. Right. So you're you're empowering them in a bad way you're in enabling them in a bad way rather than going out and buying them and go what do you need to survive right not having sex with me right so what so there's so much there that we need to change the, the paradigm of how we look at people and um, in, in this culture it's we live in a very self-centered selfish mm-hmm. society yes. And about my own pleasure and I don't really care about anybody else and, and advertising tells you that you're not successful in this car, this house, this place, and, and that's not what it's about. Man, you just made
0: the zinger of the year, empowerment versus enablement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Empowerment versus enablement. Enablement is something that is allowing you to send empowerment, is putting you in relationship with God and God's power. Right. And, and, and that's not for your use, that's for his use. You are now suited to his purposes, which are the best thing that can be. And that's what we need to be about. We need to be about empowering people in Christ through Christ. That was beautifully stated. Moving over to the chair of politics, just a short uh, come away, take away what we need to be doing. When it comes to Christians in the United States, we have a, have a sort of a mandate, don't we, to promote
4: godliness. One hundred percent. And one of the biggest takeaways I've taken, or I've taken, <laughs> one of the biggest things that I've taken away from this first half of the conversation you yourself. was how important it is to listen to these women. Mm, yes. And that's one of the biggest aspects of combating human trafficking is listening to these women and their stories. I remember when I was in college and I was a part of the beta beta fraternity, there was a sorority on campus called Zeta Chi and they had an event every fall semester where they would bring someone who is a survivor of human trafficking to come speak to all the fraternities and all the sororities. And then all the sorority members of Zeta Chi would stand around and you would go to each one of these members and they would have a story of, a human trafficking or someone who is currently in human trafficking or somebody who had survived human trafficking. And I, I just remember that night. And I'm now I'm thinking back to that night when we've had this conversation and it, it just all makes so much sense of just the importance of listening to women and, and really thinking about, okay, they've told me this. Am I going to try to fix them or am I going to, am I going to try to in, in, empower them? enable Uh, you see what i'm saying yes empower them exactly
1: yeah i think think, you know i first started doing this ministry uh one of the first things we noticed is the laws or the lack of laws that really related to the the issue from a standpoint of exploitation um because for so long the the women were the criminals and the men were just you know not even really paid attention to and so we really want to change that concept and so in 2009 when i started traveling to austin to speak to legislators about. Changing the laws and, and giving good better tools to law enforcement in order to to help the women right and um, so that was my first step. So 2009, 2011, 2013, been to Austin um, and uh, 2015, 2017, 2019, and 2019 was probably the best year uh, for me, is because uh, for the first time I, I saw a woman who was a survivor. Speaking uh, in front of legislators uh, about the issue. And so for me, it was the moment that I felt like I'm done and I no longer have to be that voice for them because now they have their own voice. And that was empowering for me to, to turn it over to them, to give them that power to speak for themselves in 2021. Uh, there was several survivors that were able to go up to Austin and speak about this issue. And that's when we changed the law on the buying of sex. So they actually decreased the penalty for selling sex, but now the first time offense for buying sex in the state of Texas is a state jail felony. So it's no longer just a misdemeanor. So they, because they listened to the survivors and they heard the stories. So that empowerment is so, you know, it's so important to the success of what we're trying to do to end human trafficking.
0: Man. So from the chair of economics, just to wrap up before we go to next week's recording, the thing that I think is the most important, and I wanna get your your take on this, is instilling the value back into them. And that's a two-way street, right? If there weren't dudes walking around, and, and that's the thing with pornography, and, and you know, hey, it's, it's, it's tough. It's something that you're bombarded with. But thank God, I always saw that as, holy cow, that's someone, that's a person with hopes, dreams, aspirations, and they're God's God's creation. We need to have that value for them, and then we need to make sure that they know how much Christ values them, how much they are worth, because at the end of the day, we're living in a secularist Materialistic monism, if you will, everything is just a product of the Big Bang, and you are a bunch of chemical reactions. That's what, that's what people think we are. That's people's worldview. And when you go to that, nihilism is inevitable. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, pouring in that value from the Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview into these women's lives, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what by the time you get done, it takes years, right?
1: Yeah, it does, and and. If- Uh, Dr. Rebecca Pfeffer, uh, years ago, did a um, study with the University of Houston and HPD, and they looked at the economics of uh, the sex trade in Houston. And what stuck out in my mind most from that report that she did, that study that she did, was that the average purchase price of a woman in Houston was $88. My gosh. So you you just now put a, a price tag on a human being for $88, you know, to do whatever you want with. Um, and, and for them, for the women that, you know, that I've worked with, and that's the biggest struggle is their identity is so wrapped up in that monetary amount that, that they've earned doing these things.
3: So if they don't get $88, they feel even well, they worse? Didn't,
1: they didn't know the $88, but, okay. they, but, but they they do know that, you know, there is a price tag. Uh, we actually had two women one time that were arguing the fact that one was able to charge $20 for oral sex. And no one was able to charge $150 for oral sex. And so the hierarchy was that the $150 woman was looking down on the $20 woman. Wow. You know, and so just because she looked like, well, you're just a, a $20, you know, this, and I'm a $150 this. And so the economics of it was that value system was tied to that money, uh, and, and it's how their identity looks, right? And so when you start talking to them about the identity of who they are in Christ, it's Str- struggle because they don't see that they don't what they f- what they feel about themselves is completely different than that and you know I I lead a Bible study with the ladies every week and I also teach a 26 week long um, uh, uh, what trauma does to us holistically from emotionally physical spiritually and, and relationally and so the biggest struggle for them is that sense of value why would anybody think of me value and they they w- are willing to accept uh, whatever relationship they get with any kind of man, because they, they don't think they deserve the best, they will accept the worst because that's what they feel like they're, they they don't count for. And so the economics is just more than money. It's also that identity. Of their identity
2: is basically wrapped up in how much money they can make Correct. for whatever uh, they can charge for right. whatever right. it is that they're doing at the time. Correct.
0: Imagine a paycheck dispute. Elevate it to the level of your innermost mm. identity. Yeah, right. Over over who's getting paid more? That's horrific. So, with that said, join us next week because this is a long one, and we've already gone over our normal time. But uh, we need to definitely flesh it out. More of your questions coming up next week. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you found this podcast edifying. Uh, Please like, comment, share, subscribe. Sharing is the new caring on YouTube. It likes that. And as far as the podcast audio is going, thank you all for 75,000 views as so far as this podcast dropping. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With that said, uh, like, comment, share, subscribe. If you didn't like this podcast, tell us why in the comment section anyway. We love you all so much. Bye-bye all right see you okay okay so there's something that we do there's something that we do at the end of every podcast we have a we we, we have a little moment where we normally talk about our favorite thing about the podcast but uh, this is a heavy subject so um we're gonna go with what can you not have on your pizza because this is a different type of podcast not have what is the one thing that you will not eat on your pizza pineapple amen Pineapple,
2: nothing, no pineapple. So
3: so anchovies is absolutely, unequivocally, positively. I can't use any more adjectives. Out. Oh, gotta put them. Oh,
2: I love anchovy.
3: By the way, I used to work for Pizza Hut. You have never been blessed until you have delivered a pizza with anchovies on it. Okay. (laughs) Second reason. Second thing. No pineapple, and I'll tell you why. It's it, it, it's disgusting if they do not drain that juice off that pineapple. You have one soggy pizza coming to you. I can't handle it. Sorry.
0: How about you, Mr. Mark? Spinach.
3: Spinach. Ooh. Yeah.
0: Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Josh.
3: I'm a fan.
4: So so, mine's is anchovies, but I I mean, over here the the elect is over here, right? That's the representative. Yeah. Yeah.
0: With the pineapple, with the pineapple. So I'm gonna say something as the most Italian name in here, Fiala, okay? It's not pizza, but I will eat it if it has pineapple on it. I'm not a snob. Uh, I'll eat it. Tell him. uh, But it's not, it's no longer pizza, but that's okay. It's some pizza pie. It's just something else. Yeah, no, anchovies is always my thing. I will eat pizza, anything. I'll eat the barbecue stuff. I am not a snobbish Italian. But uh, the anchovies, Is I just that, can't get over the slimy. Man. So tell us God, in the comment oh, section down below what you My. think you cannot have on the pizza. And tune in next week because we are going to cover the rest of the questions on the cultural, political, and economic chair in just a moment, but in a week for y'all.
2: Give me, Give me the anchovies. Give me the
0: anchovies. <laughs>